Uh, welcome everyone to Varian Perceptions October 2023 Climb Call. Um, as usual, the goal of the call is to uh, really cover what's top of mind for us, what may have changed uh, versus last month. Um, obviously, we've been putting out you know various pieces of content, so really uh, flagging kind of the, the key indicators what we are watching um, and what maybe are under follow themes uh, in the market right now. Uh, so to start with, um, you know, obviously, Scott, you joined recently, uh, you know, working with me closely on the research side. You know, I'll give you like a 30 seconds to kind of introduce yourself. Yeah, um, no, it's been good to be here. It's, it's been about a month now. Um, but I actually, I actually used to work for a, a current VP client, uh, but showed me a bit of the product in the past. And um, he spoke very highly of the firm. And yeah, I got connected with you about a month ago and a um, month in now. So it's, it's flying by, but it's been great. And I'm excited to be here. Yeah, um, perfect. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, why don't we um, jump to the portal and we can kind of uh, uh, get, get going here. So, um, you know, I think may maybe the format we do is we can kind of go over our kind of top themes and, and then kind of see how it ties together. So definitely for me, the most important thing just top of mind right now is that um, I think QT is finally at the point of gaining traction. So, um, you know, this is a chart... You know, I think I'm trying to basically stare every day. Uh, we're basically almost one and a half years into the QT process, but because the Fed's been running an excess reserve regime, it's taken them a very, very long time to get those excess reserves drained from the system. And so the way you can tell is there's no necessary one magic threshold at which reserves become scarce, but in terms of where the most sensitive price point is, you should see it in where money markets are trading. So on this chart, what we're seeing is that most of the key uh, money market rates are now trading back above the RRP award rate floor. So the RRP award rate was obviously set up and supposed to be a floor for you know, where money market rates should trade. And obviously, as we can see on the chart, for most of the past 18 months, you know, a lot of um, key money markets trades that have actually traded below it, which kind of tells you that there was just way too much reserves in the system, right? Like, Ultimately, QT was not a binding constraint. The fact we had the credit contraction, the liquidity contraction last year was much more about private sector retrenchment, uh, more caution towards lending, loan demand, but not necessarily a kind of supply-driven kind of traction crunch on the QT side. Whereas now, at least based on the fact that most of these things are back above the floor rate, it kind of tells you um, that going forwards, we don't have scarce reserves anymore, right? Now, like, this is actually going to be important, right? Like, um, you know, banks and institutions have to start thinking a little bit more about their actual overnight financing uh, costs, uh, you know, think a little bit harder. Um, now, obviously, on the, on the line, I've also shown kind of the dotted blue line, which is the interest on reserve balances. So this is kind of the rate that if you're JP Morgan, you can park, you know, reserves of the Fed and, and get that rate. But obviously, a lot of institutions don't have access. So if you're a money market fund, you would obviously park at RRP and that was supposed to be a floor. Obviously, as we've seen, there's also institutions that can't access the RRP either. And that's why the rate was trading through. So I, I think in my mind, this is a really, really kind of key thing to watch right now. And it kind of suggests that finally there's some traction there. And you know, obviously this is contributing a bit to our generally uh, kind of more cautious um, uh, stance right now, certainly tactically and, and cyclically. Um, yeah, Scott, how about you? What's kind of the most uh, top of mind thing for you right now? Yeah, something I've been following a lot, especially over the last month, has been the uh, steepening of the yield curve. You know, I've seen big moves in yields, especially in the long end. 
but not just moves and yields, also extreme moves and volatility. I think the move index hit you know, 141 at one point, close to that 150 level. Uh, uh, Harley Baskin said, you know, the creator of the move index, uh, that's a level to be very cautious of. Um, and, you know, within that environment, you've, we've seen treasury issuance extremely elevated. Uh, and they're doing it, as you just mentioned, in an environment where QT is now actually flowing through to the economy. Um, so I guess, you know, that's an interesting dynamic to me. Um, how have you been thinking about moves and yields? Um, you know, do fiscal deficits actually matter now? And, um, you know, what have you been following? What's top of mind for you within credit markets? Uh, yeah. So if we just go to our, our dashboard on U.S. fiscal, we can, well, first of all, we can just, just kind of reset the parameters a little bit. So obviously, like, that has been the, the kind of big outlier, the, the kind of elephant in the room for this cycle, right? Um, the fun thing to know is that on the kind of trailing three-month basis, using the kind of the more faster frequency monthly um, U.S. Treasury data, like the impulse is, oh, I think we've got uh, a bit of a fire alarm. Why don't you, why don't you walk through this trial and a little bit how you think about it? Yeah. Yeah, so if you're looking right here, this is our U.S. fiscal de uh, deficit impulse chart as a percent of GDP on a trailing 3 and 12 versus a year ago. Um, so, you know, like Tian said, Tian said, it's been an elephant in the room. Um, but that we're starting to see on a three-month basis is starting to roll over. Um, so, you know, a big concept for us, you know, in a world of fiscal dominance, how, you know, does will that roll over to help slow the economy? That's been a big thing we've argued of what help has helped elongate uh, this cycle. Um, but, you know, Nonetheless, we're seeing, you know, high levels of deficits uh, with it and a high yield environment. So as we, you know, uh, yeah, and, you know, so another thing that's been driving up real yields is the move we've seen in term premium. So in aggregate, it's been interesting to watch, um, like as yields remain elevated, the term premium is really what is driving it. Will that start to cause problems um, across credit markets? And like, Dan, I know you've mentioned uh, you're following bank CDS pretty closely. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, because um, a lot of this current move has obviously been driven by term premium. So I thought uh, it's important to, to point out this chart because obviously the narrative is it's probably more like a situation where a bunch of bad narratives are coming together at the same time that can kind of reinforce each other right? in terms of the yield. It's a little bit maybe like the China situation as well. There's a bunch of bad narratives kind of hitting the same time. Um, but yeah, just on term premium, though, there is this pretty cute our relationships since the GFC between effectively the market cap of bonds to equities, and it actually gives you a 12-month lead on term premium. So we're kind of close to the point of peak impulse for the term premium, and going forward, I think it's actually level off. So, you know, obviously, given the speed of the move, as you mentioned on the, on, um, the, the move index itself, this doesn't feel like just a standard, hey, we've got a price in soft landing because we had a marginally better kind of labor market print, right? That's clearly something else uh, going on. And so that was really the motivation for why um, this week I, I actually put out this report on the volatility cycle, because there's a bunch of weird things in the market price action that suggests, and again, linked to the QT point, I think put it together, it kind of suggests maybe the vol regime is changing. We've obviously been in an environment where equity volatility, certainly in terms of the VIX, has not been reacting. And, you know, we know that the hype around uh, you know, zero day expiration options, right? And, and the, the tendency for people to start using daily options for hedging event risks. Um, but, you know, the fact that the QT's traction is biting, the fact we're getting a lot more of these like moves things, a lot more persistent and regular kind of, you know, multi standard deviation moves in, in, in the bond market 
I think there's a lot more signs that maybe there's something a bit more cyclical and, and systemic going on rather than just event risk. And so I think this is why I was trying to understand. And obviously, once we review all our various volatility charts, it suggests that potentially that regime is, is starting to shift. Um, obviously, most of our indicators use fundamental inputs. But yeah, like in particular, I just thought it was really interesting to note how during this sell-off, you've had a pretty large widening in uh, bank CDS. Obviously, in, in the report, uh, I've got the Citigroup one on the right, the Bank of America CDS on the left. And you know we're not that far off even where they got to in March, right, after SVB. Um, again, obviously, GSIBs, it's not like they're going to be allowed to go under. But the fact that these things are stressed out tells you there's something a bit more going on the banking system. Yet, obviously, this time around, bank volatility, has, you know, the black line in the charts has not really been reacting. Now, the reason I think it's really interesting is, as I show in the chart here, is ultimately we know, obviously, there's a lot of unrealized losses, right? Within the U.S. banking system, there's a big uh, asset liability mismatch. A lot of banks are locked in low fixed rate um, on the asset side of the balance sheet. And there was probably a lot of um, uh, expectations, let's say, for that, you know, they were still going to grow their asset book. They were going to grow the deposit base and you get inflows. And so... Clearly, if we're in a situation where QT is biting, deposits are broadly not growing and, and, and flattening out, and, there's, and obviously you're somewhat stuck on the asset side of the balance sheet, um, then the system is obviously a bit more vulnerable, right, to, you know, if there's pockets of deposit outflows or whatever it is. So I think these things together kind of suggest that a bunch of these structural things have kind of been building that suggests the background risk is potentially uh, going up, right? And there's a lot of these really weird, not weird, but interesting kind of relationships between the VIX and other um, kind of volatility-related elements, right? For example, here we use the, the gamma exposure. Now, obviously, some people swear by gamma exposure, and some people think it's kind of just a made-up number, right? But regardless, I think using the GEX index, you can kind of see how 2023 this year's cluster has been, you know, shows that VIX has been kind of unusually low, right, compared to kind of the historical range at which you would expect it to trade. And I think early on, obviously, I showed the same chart for the move as well. So I think putting a lot of these, thing, these things together in terms of the yield move, just the sheer speed of it, the fact this time around there isn't the same rumors around basis trades blowing up and hedge funds blowing up, um, then you know, it kind of suggests there's a lot more potentially bank or balance sheet related issues, right? And that would be what the CDSs would give you a hint at as well. And yet, obviously, um, you know, there's been not, not been much of a, a, a bank ball reaction. So I think this is definitely something to keep eye on. Um, you know, to me, it kind of suggests it's a pretty good time to start looking at uh, slightly longer dated vol uh, for hedging, right? And that it might actually start to perform going forwards. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of second main thing that, you know, I actually wanted to flag as well, just, just on this divergence. Yeah, I know in, um, in this report, you mentioned the relationship between, um, you know, Equity, where equity risk premium is given or volatility has been and, you know, given that yields are very elevated um, and you mentioned, you know, we're seeing cyclical and structural, you know, six to 12 month, two plus year type moves within the volatility regime or maybe on a more tactical basis. What's your view on, you know, how equities are valued with also suppressed, maybe a near term, what's your outlook on uh, equities? Yeah, I think as we put in the, in the snapshot, like equity is actually really like quite tricky because we've obviously had you know, obviously, you know, we don't need to repeal the tropes about Magnificent Seven, right? But clearly under the hood, there's just so much more signs of dislocation than you would have just looking at headline 
US large cap indices, right? And I think that's the um, the thing that's worth kind of uh, flagging, right? So, you know, I think I put this in, even in the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, um, the, the macro snapshot kind of, I think I'm maybe I put in the in the snapshot report. Let me see. I don't know why that search isn't finding it. The uh... yeah. So here, right. So um, in terms of like the distribution of single stock forward PEs, um, like you know, we're already seeing quite an extreme kind of left fat tail here, right? There's already a bunch of stocks trading on like you know low single digit PEs within small caps. It's a very similar shape for international equities, uh, for EM equities. And yet, if we look on the right hand chart on the slide here, then clearly for the S and P right now, right, it, it doesn't look anything like previous major bottoms, right? Like the the distribution of kind of forward PEs it is a lot kind of you know more you know leaning to the right than than uh, than normal bottoms are. So, you know, in addition, obviously, I've used this chart before where if you look at U.S. closed-end funds, they've been trading at pretty dislocated levels. And again, historically, you either have these big spikes down, which are just, you know, bottoming events, but there's also these periods when they just grind lower, right? So there's clearly hints that in terms of the underlying system, there's probably not that much spare balance sheet, right? There's not that much spare risk-taking capacity, risk budget to allocate. So, you know, these are typically already... Historically, somewhat contrarian indicators um, that suggest that, you know, you want to look at value there. But obviously, at the same time, the top-down stuff, whether it's, you know, here we got, you know, equity market cap versus S&P, right? There's a bunch of these different things that's getting towards kind of more, more cautious levels. So I would characterize as more top-down. Most of the signs are pretty bearish cyclical equities, but bottom-up, there's clearly a lot of sector-specific single-stock dislocations. So I think the pragmatic thing to do is, given what we discussed on Vol just now, and the fact that obviously Vol, um, broadly speaking, is not that expensive, right, in terms of the, where the VIX has been, I think the pragmatic choice has kind of been to, you know, buy the things you want to buy, that the valuations are good, right, that, you know, ultimately, um, the three-year view will want to hold, but then just be, you know, maintaining the equity hedges, right, taking advantage of the fact that Vol is kind of, the implied Vol is not overly expensive. And if the underlying risks are picking up, that seems a better way to manage the portfolio whilst making sure at least picking up on names you like, right? Because ultimately the, the range of scenarios are the high inflation recession, you know, soft landing, disinflation recession. But there's also like scenarios where, you know, despite everything, you know, obviously our view is that power's gonna air on the side of cutting later. The market's kind of got to that pricing now. The 69, 17 energy I see I'm seeing it a lot more now, right? You know, I think when we wrote it in March, there probably wasn't as much. But like I feel I see that everywhere. So I feel like that's somewhat priced in. So from here, the, the risk is that, let's say ultimately there is some vol event and the Fed cuts too early, then obviously that might actually set off inflation assets. So that's one like risk that potentially is, is, is still could potentially come out. Um, and, but the other one is obviously the Fed just, our base case would be the Fed just stays on hold. The bar to cut is very high. They only cut on back growth, in which case you might set up a bunch of self-reinforcing recessionary kind of dynamics um, which obviously once that kicks in, eventually that'll force the Fed to use the balance sheet again, right? So um, I think given that kind of scenario, it, you know, the, the distribution, it's like there's probably, you know, a, a few names that have got a lot of stress priced in. So if you end up in any of the Fed cuts early, inflation, soft landing, they're probably okay. Um, but equally, clearly, if we go to like a, like a, you know, the Fed just stays, stays here for a while and then you let 
recessionary feedback loops truly kick in, then clearly then, you know, equity vol seems underpriced. Yeah, and um, speaking of uh, recession probabilities, uh, I don't know if you want to bring up the chart of our um, U.S. Uh, recession yeah. uh, model. It just recently ticked up, jumped from 50 to around 80 uh, month over month. Um, you know, as we continue to highlight it in our Godot's recession thesis um, that in high inflationary environments, things take longer to play out. Um, and I know something that I think has been pretty top of mind for you is the concept of labor hoarding. Um, and when will that break, if it will break? Uh, but given this recent movie, seeing the model, you know, what's your take on, you know, where are we at in, in the thesis and everything that, you know, you really want to highlight of things you've been following? Yeah, so so I think obviously this is ultimately a uh, regime model. It was designed to update daily and be sensitive to kind of marginal um, changes in the data. Right? So obviously when we designed it, it was meant to complement the leading indicators. One of the issues running it this year has clearly been that this was trained on every possible recession in history. So including the high inflation and the low inflation regimes. And so because of that, it's very, very sensitive to labor because once the lead indicators are where they are, and what, historically, when labor goes, it tends to go quickly, right? So that's why I think that it's been whipsawing a bit, broadly recessionary, but it's tended to whipsaw because it's been very, very sensitive to marginal changes in, in the labor data. Uh, again, in basically every other major historical cycle, it's very rare what we're seeing here in terms of the gap between leading uh, data and the labor market, right? And, and I think just to help visualize it, we put this in the, um, the October leading indicator watch as well. Um, right, where, yeah, if, if we look today, you know, this obviously using the conference board leading, the gap between leading to coincident is just epically low, right? And um, and basically, we use this two and a half, minus two and a half threshold as a late cycle definition, which allows you to capture kind of soft landings, um, high inflation recession, low inflation recessions, right? As three different outcomes. So what, and then essentially compare what today looks like versus history. And so, Unsurprisingly, the lead indicator is pretty recessionary, but the key thing is obviously the bottom chart here, right? The, the coincident index, that red, red line, is just holding up versus where it's been, right? It's Obviously, it's not fully soft landing, somewhere between, because if it was soft landing, the coincident would actually be holding up a lot more. Uh, soft landing, you know, like 66, 67, we talk, talked about 96, 98, right? In those situations, you didn't really have, you know, like things like um, manufacturing and a bunch of these other coincident stuff was actually hurting. So you can see it's somewhere in between, but this this gap between the red line is really being about labor. And that's obviously part of the Godot's recession thesis that the strong labor market is a feature, not a bug, when you have high inflation environments, right? In a high inflation environment, um, there's money illusion, but that's being supercharged this time because of the, uh, the fiscal stimulus, um, which obviously enabled kind of corporates to kind of delay a lot of the impacts you would, you would normally have from kind of negative operating leverage, right? So that was kind of the whole thesis. So I think going forward, like, again, another thing I'm, I'm very top of mind, very top of mind for me, I'm tracking a lot is, you know, empirically how how much labor hoarding is still going on. And so I'm, I'm mainly using this chart to get a feel for it. So what we got here um, is that the red line is basically hiring plans and then the black line is basically uh, realized earnings. And so you can see very intuitive that historically these things are super correlated and usually the black line i.e earnings is above the uh, the red in terms of this relationship right so um again it makes sense normally if you're running a business 
if your results are good, you might expand to hire people. And obviously, if your earnings go bad, you have to lay people off. Um, but we can see very clearly after COVID, this relationship broke, where the red line, the hiring plans, that's been so much more elevated than the actual realized earnings uh, in, in the survey, right? So that gap, it tells you about the labor hoarding that's going on. And you can see it's been pretty persistent and remains very large. So I think that's what's contributing to our theme that, you know, we laid out when, when we actually put out the uh, the kind of Godot recession report, right? Which is, um, I think we're into kind of stage three of the high inflation uh, playbook. Um, so I think, you know, we put in here, right, in terms of heuristics. So stage one is, you know, rising prices, companies jack up prices, you generate inflation, you, know, you try and preserve profit margins, et cetera. But then eventually the labor uh, guys fight back to restore real income levels, right? And it's, it's the key is that they're trying to restore real income levels. And that's what starts pressuring profit margins and creates the headwind. Now, obviously, that's become a bit more like visible in terms of obviously being a bunch of different strikes, right? And obviously in the report, I put out a bunch of different company commentaries on, on labor costs. So I think that's going to become more and more of a theme as we go for the second half. So again, I think the, the sequencing this time around is that it's more profit margins likely break more and break harder before the labor market data deteriorates, right? Because of this inherent labor hoarding going on, corporations will have to be forced into layoffs rather than act preemptively because obviously the, the you know, it was a very hard experience hiring after COVID. And so as a result, I think you, there'll be more tolerance of kind of profit, uh, profit margin pressures until eventually, you know, nothing can be done and then it, it, it cuts right. Now, this is tied to specifically the why the, uh, the recession model jumped. So what's very interesting um, right now is that the, the continuing claims, diffusion, and indeed a lot of these diffusions are, are still elevated. So clearly headline initial claims are down, right? Feature not a bug. You, know, you don't want to necessarily, you're going to be holding labor. You, you're not going to preemptively cut a bunch of people. But this diffusion of uh, rising continuing claims by states is kept going up. And I think this is what's forcing up the recession model. And you know, the intuitive interpretation of this is just saying that, broadly speaking, when people lose their jobs, then they're no longer finding it as easy to get a new job. So they just stay on continuing claims. So as people slowly lose their jobs, continuing claims are grinding higher. So again, it's not necessarily saying it's, it's acute and imminent, but it's just more signs that, you know, if people are struggling to find jobs, you're, you're, you know, companies will obviously stop hiring in theory or, or doing a lot of hiring. So you're not that far away from if the economy stays bad, they might be forced into layoff. Obviously this, you know, for the most part that the, 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 the news headlines are in more like the startup space or in the privates or cash burning, you know, a lot of the, the previous really sexy winners, right. You know, in, um, uh, you know, whether it's gaming or, you know, SAS or, you know, diff different things. Right. So like, you can see a bit more where there's more and more news on, on those guys and, and the layoffs are coming, but yeah. So th this is kind of what, what's driving the model up. But again, in my mind, the, the key, the key thing we, we really want to just keep eye on is still basically how much the, uh, um, how much basically the, 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 the profit margins uh, keep deteriorating. Because ultimately, I think, you know, I've, I think I've shown this chart a lot as well, right? Historically, on average, the lead is about a year, right? So the red line here is the change in profit margins. It's reverse on axis. So the red line going up tells you profit margins going down. And then the black line is the unemployment rate. So it's saying if profit margins go down, unemployment rate tends to go up um, with a one-year lag, right? And obviously, we're in that window. Um, right now so yeah i think this is kind of a 
again, yes, the recession model's on, but I think given all the work we put in for the Godot recession, this is the, you know, every data point around this theme, label holding, I think that's the, the key thing to understand um, to see if that's still playing out. Right. I think, uh, you know, that's the that's a very key argument against, you know, the, the one, as you mentioned, the one time we flagged, you know, soft laying in history, 1967. Um, similar dynamics that did eventually, you know, lead to 1969 and 70, which is very much more uh, what we're seeing today. Um, so it, it happened. That's why I found the labor market so close because the labor market doesn't break, right? That would be the only uh, potential argument for, you know, a soft landing going forward, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough, right? Because obviously the main bullish narratives, um, you know, I've, obviously I've seen Ed Yardini and obviously, you know, give him a lot of credit mm-hmm. in terms of the, um, the the rolling recession thesis. And right. yeah, that because we're having recessions in different parts, it's, it's all out of sync and we're going to be fine and manufacturing is coming back, right? Now, I think that was the, the motivation for this report we put out um, on, you know, the surgical stock shorts, where again, on a headline level, it does look like the manufacturing cycle is going to turn up very strongly because ism new orders are surging you know durable goods inventories right look like you know they, they might be going up um but obviously when we dug deeper what we realized was the the inventory cycle the bullwhip effect is not fully played out down the supply chain right so and you still have this inverted relationship right now between customer inventories and manufacturing inventories right and we can see on the right hand chart the difference between customer manufacturing inventories is what actually leads overall inventory growth um, and there's a couple of other ways to visualize it, right? You know, if you visualize inventory to sales, for the wholesalers, inventory to sales is still very high. Retailers are still pretty distorted from COVID, but manufacturing for sure is, is back down. So, you know, and there's still like these hypersensitive sectors, you know, like the Camcos and stuff like Croda and like a lot of these, you know, they just every, you know, it's, I think it's been a few quarters in a row, right? Where it's been talking about just final demand being weak and people thinking it's the bottom of the cycle, but we're not quite done with destocking. And that, you know, the narrative has just been an you know, inventory rebuild. So I think this is, um, this remains a pretty big concern. And obviously we actually name specific company names here, which, you know, either they, you can consider them to be shorts, but also potentially bellwethers, right? So, you know, Accor um, in particular, I think is a really going to be a really interesting bellwether name right now, because it's generally a name that, you know, I think very credible, smart, single stock friends of mine, people love this company, right? And you look at it like, you know, quality management, all that stuff, um, great positions and stuff. But um, the, the product is in theory a commodity and, it's a, and it looks very strongly like a COVID over earnings story where, I've, you know, I've got the chart here where the red line is earnings, um, the gray bars are sales. So the, the gap between the red and the gray bar is actually margins, right? You can think of it like that. So... Essentially, out of COVID, you can see there's a massive inflection in earnings upwards and, exp- and margin expansion, right, which, which is kind of linked to a classic COVID-juiced bullwhip, right, or just, you know, cycle kind of thing, right? And so, you know, you have, you have this long period of over-earning, and now earnings are starting to roll over, but you're still at elevated margins. And so going forward, it'll be very interesting to see if that actually comes off, and then ultimately if, uh, how, how uh, markets react to it. Um, there's other names that... You know, I think it's shown up on our, um, you know, I think another name that, that showed up was on our one was the, uh, you know, I think basically after the sell-off went to the top of our crowding scores on S&P was our Zebra. So again, very similar thing where yeah, uh, in COVID, you get this massive jump in the red line, massive margin expansion, big over earning, drives up prices, multiples get priced up. And then 
uh, too much of an inventory build, right? The bullwhip effect has is, isn't really playing out fully. It's just because COVID was such a big distortion for so long. Um, so I think that's a very bellwether thing to keep an eye on because, you know, I think for now, anyway, I'm still quite skeptical on the, uh, that we're going to have a, a, you know, I think it's really realistic next year before you can have a, 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 a system-wide kind of, Kind of inventory rebuild, right? Like it's still it's still not played out, but we'll be able to see when these uh, as these companies report. Um, the other part of the the rolling recession sees is obviously housing. Now, I mean, that was quite you know we we got quite lucky in a sense, right? Because at the beginning of the year, one of the really contrasting things we called it was at least like okay, long home builders, even though we call for recession. Obviously, we kind of got the recession wrong, but the home builders actually did really well. Um, and obviously, we actually managed to sell it in July, um, but. One of the issues, though, is that was just more like crowding and then pricing the soft landing. But now that it's been priced in, um, it, you know, I, I even put it in, in the volatility piece, right? Like you're, you're getting some pretty extreme um, data points now on the housing market, right? Like here on the left, we can see that the median U.S. family cannot afford to get a mortgage, a, a standard mortgage anymore. And this has been extremely rare. And this is... Um, you, know, you have to go back to the 80s when the qualifying income was more than a medium family income. Right? And this is obviously assuming you spend 100% of your income on, on getting a mortgage, right? So, so these levels of mortgage rates and staying up here and then the 6970 Fed analogy, again, it, you know, that, that really suggests that, yes, long term, we still love home builders. The capital cycle stuff makes sense. But clearly, clouding's really picked up on, on, on these names already. Um, but yeah, these, these these are real problems, right? So yeah, for now, I, I still think it's, it's probably not not that obvious. Um, obviously, you show the fiscal impulse. The last piece for the soft landing would be the U.S. consumer. So there again, the, the jury is out, right? I think that's another situation where they've clearly been very very resilient um, this year, and despite all the leading indicators, what you've ended up with is just a sideways in real terms, kind of you know just keep going. Kind of consumer um so we'll see a little bit how you know these high frequency data points go right like obviously there's a lot of narratives around you know student loans all these things kind of kick in but for now i would say yeah it's just sideways as we can see so yeah we can keep eye on it but again it feels like it's more um the impulse isn't necessarily positive but it's not necessarily headwind or tailwind you're just maintaining levels from last year so if say on the fiscal side we're just maintaining levels from last year Consumers maintaining levels from last year, some reasons to doubt the manufacturing bullwhip, some reasons to doubt the housing narrative. And then our underlying labor cost push thesis become more of a problem, right? Then that actually suggests that's going to eat into profit margins. So that, that's kind of how I'm kind of conceptualizing how these pieces fit. But then the ultimate judge is we just have to keep on top of the, the company earnings, what's happening with uh profit margins and whether labor costs remain remains an issue. And, and that'll, that'll give us a sense of, um, you know, if the Godot recession thesis actually ultimately plays out. Absolutely. Um, I know we're, you know, we're at about the 30 minute mark. Is there anything else top of mind that you wanted to cover? Uh, yeah, well, I think, as, as a I guess a couple of things, right? I guess one is um, just to flag for clients. Obviously, we, we, we are maintaining these, um, asset allocation tables to give you like a quick snapshot in terms of, you know, some of the key ideas or reports that we're putting out or may have been missed, right? Because obviously, we, you know, we put out content. I appreciate clients get, you know, a million emails and stuff like that. So this is usually a, a quick way to just get a feel for 
some of our thoughts and what the potential portfolio implications may be. So I yeah, I just sort of flag it, flag it again. Um, otherwise, I think what the in terms of the last kind of month, the most important piece of work we put out structurally would be um that you know this Occam's razor report, right? Because again, this is such a weird macro environment because it's been a long time since fiscal matter, it's been a long time since yields came up this much, right? It's been a, so we really wanted to think about the drivers of FX, right? Because this is getting to a really confusing decision point where uh, it's not just carry, it's not just valuations, right? Current account, fiscal account, credit, capital cycle, they all become structural drivers of where FX is going. And so, you know, I think we put a lot of work into this, you know, building lots of different gradient boosted decision tree and then doing all sorts of things to figure out what the right hierarchy is to make a decision. Because clearly FX is kind of subject to way too many kind of, you know, potentially offsetting impacts, right? You know, we mentioned Mandel Fleming and stuff. So, you know, I would encourage clients clients to kind of uh, ultimately read this report. And then uh, in terms of the model outputs, we are, you know, it's obviously being pushed to the portal. So at least that helps us set like a, you know, uh, a 12 months forward kind of expected edge, right, to to different FX pairs. And that gives us an anchor on which to interpret our tactical signals. So, yeah, those are probably the, the two main things to highlight. Um, but yeah, I guess I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll can, uh, we can leave it there. Yeah. Great job, Scott, for your, for your first call. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see everyone soon.